So why don't you stand with me? We're going to read from Philippians chapter 1. You can read in your own Bible, uh, or you can read it there on the screen. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 27 through 30. And today, I would invite you to read aloud with me. This is not like just a short one verse, but it's also not a super long passage either. And this is Paul and Timothy. Uh, I, I think mostly Paul, but Timothy, you know, Paul gives Timothy a shout out at the beginning here, uh, just saying, hey, this is the both of us writing this to the church in Philippi. And in verse 27, read with me. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a matter worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Look at your neighbor and say, we're in this together. Now look at the other person next to you and say, we're in this together too. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we want to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. God, we pray this same prayer nearly every week. But God, we don't just pray it just out of rote memorization. We don't just pray it because this is just the habit that we do it. Lord, we pray it because we really want it to be the cry of our heart. We want to be in communion with you. We want to be in step with you. We want to be in line with you. We don't want to miss what you're doing, what you're doing in this church, what you're doing in the greater body of Christ. We want to be in unity with you, and we want to be in unity with one another. So give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying so we can be one with you. In the name of Jesus, everybody said amen. 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 Guys, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can describe the local church. Um, some people might call it a fellowship, you know, and I think about the movie Lord of the Rings, and it's the Fellowship of the Rings is that first installment, you know, and you had these, you know, however many, I say guys, but it was like men, elves, dwarves, and then this wizard named Gandalf, and they created this fellowship and they were on a mission together. And so a fellowship is one way we can think about the church, the local church. Another word to use is a congregation. That's kind of like the traditional church word. You know, we, this is the congregation. And then a lot of people use the word community. And those are all good words. There's another really good word that I think of. Uh, one word that we use around here often, that's the word family. You know, church is not just a place that you go to. It's a family that you belong to. But there's even kind of a more even ancient word than the word, well, I say, how do you, it's not more ancient than family. It's just more ancient in our vocabulary. It's not a word that we use as often as, the, as we use the word family, but it's the word tribe. Tribe. And tribe is a word that tells us, and it not only informs us, but it informs others that what's happening here within church, within Seeds Church, what's happening here is something different than what's going on in the rest of the world. It's a word that means that we're close, that we're tight-knit. It says that we're in this together and we have a closely held common goal. Uh, think about tribes in the sense of like the ancient world or the developing world. I mean, there still literal are, literally, there are tribes still uh, around the world today that they must work together in order to, to survive. And I like that. I like the, the connotation there. I like that thought of the church, that seeds church even, that we are a tribe, that we're working together to survive, but not just survive, but God has called us to thrive in this world. We don't just need each other in order to survive. We need each other in order to fully thrive. 
and go to the next level. Tribe is a word that says that we have family-like dependence upon one another, which shouldn't be surprising, like I said, because family is a word that we use around here a lot. It's one of the normal ways that we use uh, to describe one of the functions of the church. Uh, through Jesus, we've been grafted into his family, praise God, to, into the family of God, which is the global church, the greater family. And then there are subsets, which are the local church. It's us. We're a subset of the greater family of God. And in our tribe, we are on the same mission. We're on the same mission, and that accomplishment of that mission depends upon our unity. Everybody say unity. unity. In John chapter 17, Jesus is wrapping up a time with his disciples. This is where they're having the Last Supper, this Passover meal, right before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, which is where he is then arrested. And then he's tried with this illegal trial in the middle of the night. And then he's scourged and then crucified. And so these are the last moments that he's spending with the disciples. And so much happens here in John chapter 13 through 17. So much of our theology is developed here in these chapters. And this is a prayer that Jesus prays and he says, I am praying not only for these disciples, meaning those right there at the table. And also, Jesus had disciples beyond the 12. And, you know, he had, he had different circles. He had the three, right? Peter, James, and John. Then he had the 12. And then outside of the 12, there were other disciples as well. And Jesus is saying, I'm not only praying for these who are here with me now, but... I'm also praying for all who will ever believe in me through their message. How many of you in here are believers in Jesus? Let me see your hands. Okay, so then your disciples in this prayer, Jesus is praying for you, for me. And I don't think that's a very light thing. I don't think that's something that we should just kind of breeze over and read over. I think we need to understand the weight of this. This is Jesus' prayer for you, Avery. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's his prayer for me. It's his prayer for you. And he says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. He's praying to the Father. Father, just as you and I are one, I pray that they would be one as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And they may be in us. And then what's the purpose? So that the world will believe you sent me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm praying for unity in my body because it is a must for the mission. Unity is a must for the mission. And in verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. What? What? Jesus has bestowed upon us his glory? I don't deserve that. Well, that's okay because it's not for whatever it is I want to use it for. I don't have the glory of Jesus so that, you know, I can have just a nicer life. No, I have the glory of Jesus bestowed upon me so that we can be in unity. This is what he says, so that they may be one as we are one. The glory of Jesus is upon you. But it's also upon the person sitting next to you. And it's the person sitting across the aisle from you. Why? So that we can be one. And why do we need the unity? Because unity is a must for the mission. Because what he said there in the verse previous, so that the world will believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, he says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Listen. Jesus is passionate about his church. And he is passionate about unity in his church. We see it here in this prayer. We see it littered all throughout the Gospels. We see it all throughout the epistles in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament too. When the people became, became divided and they got out of unity with God, 
they would get out of unity with one another. And every time that happened, we see this crazy roller coaster all throughout the Old Testament of when people got, got disunity between them and God and between one another, it left an opportunity for the enemy to come in and wreck their lives. You think, well, you might, you might think, well, I'm just not that passionate about the mission, so unity is just a whatever for me. Okay, think that all you want. But whenever you're not in unity, it's an opportunity for the enemy. It's not just a passive thing. It's not just a neutral thing. It's not just, uh, uh, it's not just a static position. It's, it's, it's dynamic. It's either like we go for this and we have it and we excel. And if we don't, it's not like, well, we just don't have it. No, you are leaving a door open for the enemy to come in and have his way in your heart in your family, and in this church. It's important. And so because of this, because, you know, we see this here in this prayer, we see it all throughout the scriptures, because of this, we ought to recognize and we need to take notice of the purpose for the unity that was so important to Jesus. And I think a good question to ask ourselves just is at Seeds Church, with our tribe, what is the fruit that God is working through our unity? Well, I'll tell you what it ought to be. One of the fruits of our unity is that it supports God's mission. That's the first thing. Our unity supports God's mission. God's mission is what? It's really simple. This is not a trick question. God's mission is that he wants to be reconciled to every wayward offspring Every single person on this planet, he wants to be reconciled to. Every single person who is living in the kingdom of darkness right now, he wants to, by the grace of Jesus Christ and through his life and death and resurrection, pick them up and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness, this is what Colossians 1 says, and transfer them into the kingdom of his dear son of whom he loves. That's God's mission. And our unity supports the mission. Jesus made it clear that it was his sacrifice that this reconciliation was possible. This is the message of the gospel. It's that simple. It's the message of the church. At Seeds Church, when we were in the earlier years, this is still the earlier years. We were just in year, we're closing year five. (laughs) So we're still in the early years of this church. But even in the earlier, more infancy of our church, We're developing our identity and our language, the language of our tribe, right? And the language of our tribe, we we had a mission statement. And that mission statement, and we still have this, is that um, we exist to help people discover who God has created them to be and equip them to do what God has called them to do. Our vision statement, what our vision is, it's not what's happening right now, but it's what we know that God's called us to down the road, is that we see thousands of men, women, and children being equipped and empowered to build the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's, it's, look around. Is Seeds Church a, a church of thousands? No. We've got like 150 people in here. But regardless of how many people are in one room, we can have an exponential effect on our community. Take 150 people in this room and go out these doors, and each one of us touch the lives of 10 people this week. And I don't, when I say touch the lives, like that could be just even in the smallest way the Holy Spirit using you. I think think sometimes when we think of the Holy Spirit using us in life, we think of like these big grandiose like Billy Graham moments where a stadium is full of people. And God's not going to use every single one of us to do that. But in our everyday lives, the Holy Spirit can use us to touch somebody's life and to plant the seeds of the gospel and to water the seeds of the gospel. And one plants, one waters, and another harvests. And if 150 people touch 10 people in one week, that's, a, that's 1,500 people. And so whether or not our membership is ever a church of thousands, I, that's up to God. I, that's, listen, we're just going to do what God's called us to do. 
We're going to go after what he's called us to go after. We're not after. We're going to have to be a church of this many people. That's up to God. But the vision is, is that we would touch thousands of people, that thousands would be empowered and equipped to build the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. So we had this mission statement about helping people discover who God created them to be and equipping them to do what God called them to do. We have this vision statement of, you know, touching thousands of people. And we went on for a period of time, but I realized there was something else missing, and that was just kind of like a purpose statement. And so eventually we adopted this purpose statement, and that's this, this really simple thought of what this is all about, about supporting God's mission. And it's this, Seeds Church exists to introduce people to the real Jesus because every single person was created to be in relationship with him. Seeds Church exists for God's mission, which is what? To introduce people to the real Jesus because every person was created to be in relationship with him. Our unity is vital to executing that mission. It's vital to getting this message out. What is another fruit of our unity? Another fruit of our unity is that it influences the community. It influences the community around us. Jesus wanted us. Remember in John 17? He's praying for us. He wanted us, his church, to be so loving, to be so forgiving, to be so in unity and united with one another that the rest of the world would have to take notice. That the rest of Middle Tennessee would have to take notice because of the unity that exists within Seeds Church. That was Jesus' prayer for us. And when we are uncommonly united, and when I say uncommonly united, I say that in a way because out in the world, there are all kinds of appearances of unity. But if you start digging deep at all, you find that everyone has an agenda. How many of you know this at work? Right? People, when you, when you get into your place of business, you find out people have an agenda. Oh, on the surface, it might look like that we're working as a team, but under, there's an undercurrent of like, I'm doing my own thing to do what I want to do to get where I want to get. But at church, we don't have those motivations. We have this uncommon unity that contrasts with the disunity and the division found in the rest of the world. And it shows something to the watching world that something supernatural is at work within the church. And it models to the world the undivided nature of God. Think about God the Father. God the Son, and God the Spirit, and how they're three in one. It's something that the human mind cannot fully comprehend. You know, I heard, I had a student one time trying to, uh, you know, explain, like, Pastor J.D., like, I figured out, like, how to explain the Trinity. I've got this three-in-one shampoo. You know, I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, good try. (laughs) Good try. Maybe we shouldn't boil the Trinity down to, you know, hair care products. But, but all three are within perfect harmony and unity with one another. And when we are within unity with one another and in harmony with one another, it demonstrates the character and nature of the Godhead to the rest of the world. And this is a responsibility that we have. And, and I'm saying that it's something that we, we shouldn't take lightly. And I've been thinking about this within the context of marriage recently. You know, marriage is is something that, you know, when Jesus Jesus talked about marriage in the book of Matthew, he, you know, the Pharisees tried to trick him into this question about divorce. And Jesus said, you know, well, Moses, you know, made these concessions for divorce and the law of Moses because your hearts are so hard. But Jesus said, you know, what one... (laughs) Let a, let a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, that the two shall become one, and let what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why is marriage so important to Jesus? It's because it is a, another picture, it's another representation of what our relationship is, is with him. 
That's why in Malachi chapter 1, it says that God hates divorce. Now, listen, if you're divorced in this place, I'm not saying that God hates you, but his heart breaks that you've been through that or that you're going through some kind of difficulty in your marriage right now because it is not reflecting his relationship with his people. That's what marriage is. It's a reflection. And, this, and again, this is another thing that we should take seriously in the covenant of marriage, that it's not just a... a Marriage is not just a contract between one party and another party. It's not like, well, a contract says this. If you do X, Y, Z, then I'll do X, Y, Z. If you fulfill your part of the contract, then I fulfill my part of the contract. But a covenant says, no, I matter. I love you no matter what. So even if you don't fulfill your part of the contract, I'm still married to you. I'm still devoted to you. I'm still all in on this. And we see that. All throughout the Bible, especially, again, through the Old Testament, these stories of the people of God kind of divorcing God and walking away from him, but God never abandons them. Now, because they walk away from the Lord, does it allow space for the enemy to come in and mess with them? Big time. But the Lord allows that so that it would draw the people back to him. And so marriage is a picture of the unity that God has with his church. And that is, and the, and the unity that we have in our, in our church, in Seed's church, is also a picture. And we should take that seriously because as we walk in unity, it communicates that to the rest of the world that this is what God desires for you. He wants to be in unity with you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be reconciled with you. And check this out. The more united that we become, I'm like, you guys, this is like just spiritual math for first graders right here. The more united we become, the more time and energy that we have to focus on the ministering of the needs to the people, not just within our community, not just within our tribe, but outside into the greater community. Instead of wasting our time and our energy by scrutinizing one another on minor differences and preferences, the simple spiritual math is is that when we're walking in unity, we're going to have more time, we're going to have more energy, we're going to have more resources to minister to legitimate problems in our community. We're going to have more time to make disciples unto Jesus. We're going to have more time to reach those who are not yet reconciled to the Father, and they're lost. When we walk in unity, instead of, us spin, instead of it being in disunity, we'll just spin our wheels. When we walk in unity, we're empowered to go out and make a difference in this world, to proclaim the name of Jesus. That ought to get you excited but it's awfully quiet in this Holy Ghost-filled, Spirit-filled church. Our unity is important to Jesus. It's something that he loves. It's something that he prayed about, not just for those who were sitting at the table with him on that night, but he prayed it for those of us that are sitting here in this room today. And because Jesus loves it, and because he wants our unity to increase, because he wants our unity to be perfected, what that tells me is that the enemy hates our unity. Because that anything that's important to Jesus and that he loves, that means the enemy hates. And is trying to destroy. What did Jesus say about the enemy? That he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I've come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. How many of you want the life that Jesus provides and to have it to the fullest? I do. And the, one of the ways that we get there is to decide we're going to be walking in unity. We've got to guard the unity of this church. We've got to be intentional about it. Guarding something does not happen by accident. It doesn't happen just because, you know, just by putting it into cruise control. You, you ever watch, like, you know, some kind of military movie or espionage movie or something like that where, you know, they're guard, like the, the bad guys are guarding the base, Right? And you've got the good guys who are trying to infiltrate the base. And every single time in one of these movies, it's like, what are the good guys looking for? 
They're looking for when those guards are out there and they just have it in cruise control. They're not really fully paying attention. They're not really fully engaged. They're not really guarding. They're, not, they're just out on a walk. And then they're looking for an opportunity to infiltrate. And that's what the enemy does for us. If we just throw it into cruise control and we're not intentionally being purposeful about guarding our unity, the enemy will just wait. And he just, well, I'll just wait for them to just throw it into cruise control. I'll just wait for when they're least expecting it. I'll just wait for them when they're really weak. I'll just wait for when they're not expecting it whatsoever. And then he'll want to come in and stir up division. D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists of the 1800s, he said this, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. I've never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. And my experience tells me the same thing. I've certainly seen the power of unity at, it, at work. And it's, in, it's awesome. It's incredibly awesome when unity exists, of what God can do in and through a tribe. And I have also seen how disunity it hinders and resists the work of the Holy Spirit that's trying to work in the church, and it damages the church's witness, it damages the church's credibility, and it damages the influence in its community. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something right now. This is very kind of in our face, but what I'm about to say is not unique to Seeds Church. It's just, just, it's just the truth of like every local church because the enemy hates every local church. But I have seen this exact thing where disunity and division has come into this body and literally because of that, it hurt the witness of our church and it hurt our credibility and it hurt our influence in the community. It hurt even people within the community that were just on the fringe, people that were here, people that hadn't yet bought in, but they were testing the waters of, do I want to be part of this community? And then they, get, they hear the whispers of division and disunity, and they're like, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with that. And I get it. I understand. But here's the deal. The Lord, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Lord has called me to this church. And I believe that if you're here, you're not here by accident, and you're not here just because, well, I just made the decision to come here this morning or the last several weeks in a row or whatever it is. You're here because of God's providence and because he's called you to be here. And so that tells me that if the enemy does try to get in and stir up division and disunity, I'm not just going to leave and I'm just, I'm just not going to bail. I'm going to actually raise up a standard against the enemy and we're going to fight this, and we're going to come into unity. But the fact remains of this truth, that when we don't operate in unity, and disunity comes, and division comes, it hurts our witness, it hurts our credibility, and it hurts our influence in the community. Now, how many of you want the witness of this church to be strong? How many of you want the witness, uh, the credibility of our church to be legit, how many of you want the, the influence in our community to be strong and to be like known in, in, in this area of Middle Tennessee? Not, not because we're trying to promote the sign out front or a specific brand, but we are on mission for Jesus Christ himself. That's why it's important that we walk in unity and we don't hurt the witness of the church and we don't hurt the credibility of the church and that we don't hurt the influence in our community. It's because we're not on mission for ourselves. We're on mission for Jesus. If God is going to move at Seeds Church, we must be united. We say, God, you come where you're wanted, so we want you here. But then we gossip and we backbite and we treat each other like garbage. So you know what that tells the Lord? They don't really want me here because they're more worried about themselves than they're worried about me. You... you Sorry, this is just such a feel-good, pat-me-on-the-back sermon today. Everybody feeling good about themselves? 
It's true, though. If we want to see a move of God, we must be united. We can pray for revival till we're blue in the face, but until I start walking in forgiveness toward my brother and sister, then God's not going to do anything around here. These are simple building blocks. You cannot get a skyscraper without making sure the foundation is done right. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, this is a a great example. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. What I want you to do is to connect that last sentence and that first sentence together. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and what was the result? God's blessing, God's great blessing was upon them all. I love that, that Luke specifically used the word great there. Not just like a normal blessing from God, a great blessing from God was on them all. And why? How did they get there? Because they decided to be in, united in heart and in mind with one another in the Spirit. I'm convinced that when we have the unity at Seeds Church, like we see in the church in the book of Acts, then we're going to have the power at Seeds Church, like we saw the power demonstrated in the book of Acts. There should be a bigger amen for that. Our unity isn't something... Again, it's not something we should take lightly. It's not something we should take for granted. It's not something that's going to happen by just accident or throwing it into cruise control mode. It's a gift from God. It is a gift from God, and it's made possible to us uh, by Jesus, and it's made effective by the working of the Holy Spirit. Unity is something, it's not something, I should say, that we're able to just create. It is It is something that happens when we die to ourselves, when we say, Jesus, you're the center of it all, not me, not my way, but your way. I love what John the Baptist said, less of me and more of him, talking about Jesus. And then when we start having that attitude, the Holy Spirit begins to unite us with one another and bond us together with one another and bond us together with his spirit It's not something that we create. It's something that he does, but it is our responsibility to guard it. We have to guard it. So how can we guard our unity when Paul says there are evil rulers and authorities in the unseen realm, which are our enemy, and they're trying to tear us apart? Ephesians chapter 6. Everybody look at the person next to you and say, you're not my enemy. Tell the person on the other side, you're not my enemy. Ephesians 6 says we don't fight against flesh and blood enemies, but our fight is with evil rulers and authorities in the unseen realm. And these these evil, wicked spirits exist for real, and they are trying to tear us apart. They're trying to tear apart the unity in this church. They're trying to tear apart the unity in your family. And they're trying to tear apart the unity that you have with the Lord. And how do we guard ourselves against these things? I'm so glad you asked. Get out out your phone or a notebook paper or something. And if you have not already been writing notes, take some notes here. Each one of these things that I'm about to share with you could be a whole sermon by themselves. But we're not going to take all that time today. Otherwise, guys, I just got to be honest with you. I want to eat today. So can I get some amens for unity also and not just lunch? All right, praise God. Here's the first thing right here. Stop making it about you. Stop making everything about you. I love uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. The very first sentence in the book when you open it up, chapter one, it's not about you. Now, listen, I may not align with all of Rick Warren's theology on every single, you know, dot and tittle throughout the scriptures, 
but I do agree with him about this first sentence. It's not about you. Stop making everything that's going on in your life and going on in the church about you. It's not. The church does not, are you ready for this reality check? I mean, really, come on. The church does not exist to make you happy. And listen, as the pastor of this church, the church does not exist to make me happy either. Do you know that there's all kinds of things throughout the nearly six years, nearly, nearly six years that we have gone in this church, we have done things that I would be like, well, I wouldn't do it that way. But because the mission of this church is to identify what gifts God has given you and equip, and equip you to do those things, we give liberty for people to do things, and we say, well, God might be in this. And no, it's not the way that I would do it, even as the pastor. Did you know if, if, if I was, wanted this room to look the way that I wanted it to look, it'd be like a black box theater? I just like that. That's cool. But some of you are like, I would never come to this church ever again because it's a black box theater. Well, guess what? It's not about that. It's not about you. So I'm going to paint it as a black box theater next week. No, I'm teasing. Because it's not about me either. The church does not exist to make me happy or you happy. You know what it exists for? To glorify God. The way to maintain unity is to think of others more important than you think of yourself and to make the mission of seeing lives changed by the gospel as more important than personal preferences or control. It's not about you. It's not about me. Now, some of you are like, I, I do not receive that word. I'm never coming back to this church ever again. That's fine. Go be unhappy in another church. Number two, <laughs> keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Romans chapter 14, if you have your Bibles open there, this is not up on the scripture. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read it here to you. I think this is in the New Living Translation. It says, accept other believers, not, not accept them, but accept them, A-C-C-E-P-T, accept other believers who are weak in faith. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, this is still Paul talking here, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Look at the person next to you and tell them, you are God's servant. Now look at the other person and say, I am God's servant too. Who are you to condemn God's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, praise God, they will stand and receive his approval. Don't major on minor issues. Are there major issues in the, in, the, in the church? Absolutely, there's major issues. There are some things that we look through the scripture, and these are non-negotiable, and they're easy to interpret. And you don't have to have a doctorate degree to see that, no, that's displeasing to the Lord. And this is what is pleasing to the Lord. Those are major things, and those are things that are easy to agree on. But there are other things that Paul calls in this another version of, of this uh passage here, he calls them disputable matters. He's like, don't get your underwear in a bunch over disputable matters, okay? <laughs> now some of you are not going to come back to church because I said that. <laughs> you don't need to insist that everyone agrees with you on every minor detail. It, 
arguing over disputable manners is an indication of self-centeredness and having to have things your way. But what's required for maintaining unity is less self and more centeredness. Not centered on you, but on Jesus and his mission. And it's why we are so intentional. We have so many songs, you guys, that talk about Jesus at the center. There are songs that, that we have sought out, that other people have wrote, and we're like, that is a song for this tribe because Jesus will be the center of the tribe of Seeds Church. And when we write songs, I think there's at least two of the songs that we've written this year that talk about Jesus is at the center. Why? Because he's the main thing, and we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. What's required for maintaining unity is less self. It's more centeredness on Jesus and his mission. Richard Baxter, who was a theologian in the 1600s, he said this. He said, in necessary things, unity. Right? The main things. In necessary things, unity. In doubtful things, liberty. In all things, charity, love. Listen, we don't have to agree on minor things in order to have unity in this church. But we do have to agree on the, on the big things, on the main things. So let's keep the main thing the main thing, and that's Jesus, him crucified, him resurrected, and his gospel the mission of us being reconciled to God. Amen. That's great, Pastor J.D. You're preaching really great. Here's the third thing. Control your tongue. If you want to guard the unity of this church, control your tongue. And I will say this. This is an area of your life that doesn't just need to be like regulated to your church life, it needs to be in your family. It needs to be at work. It needs to be in your dealings with school, with those of us that have kids in school. Control your tongue. Don't let gossip fester. Don't let it fester in this church. Well, J.D., what exactly is considered gossip? I mean, so-and-so called me to let me know we needed to pray for this other person over here. Gossip is when you are sharing here, let me just say this. If that person over there wanted you to know about their problem and wanted you to pray for them, then they should call you themselves. Now, it is different when we get a prayer request here at the church and we always ask the person, when a prayer request comes in to us at the leadership here of the church, we always ask them, is this something that we can share with our prayer team? And 99.9% .9 of the time, the people say, yes, share it with the prayer team. I want as many people praying about this as possible. And then there are even bigger things sometimes that we go, is this not just something we can share with the prayer team, but can we share with the whole church? And on those big things, we ask for permission, not so we can go around and talk about people's problem, but so that we can actually walk in honor toward one another and stay in unity. Gossip is this. It's when you're sharing a problem or criticism with someone who is neither part of the problem or part of the solution. I'm going to say that one more time so that our thick heads can absorb this truth. <laughs> Gossip is when you are sharing a problem or criticism with someone who is not part of the problem and they're not part of the solution. Well, I called them to pray. Did, does other, did other people know that you're calling around and talking to people? The Bible says that gossip is a sin. The word of God, the Lord, Jesus himself, says that it's a sin. And I'll say this. When you listen to gossip, you then become an accomplice. Now listen. Listen. You cannot help whether or not someone just starts saying, sharing something, oversharing something to you. But what you can do is you can control whether or not you stop them in their tracks and say, whoa, 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 why are you, why are you telling this to me right now? Why, why are you sharing this with me right now? 
this is not anything to do with me. I, I'm so glad that you felt like I was a trustworthy person for you to come and share this with information with me so that we could pray about it together. But who really needs to know about this? Not me. Let's go and find the people that are the solution to this problem. I had somebody this week call me and repent for the sin of gossip. And I challenged this person and I said, don't worry, it's not anybody here. <laughs> Some of you guys are really tense. Is it, is it my wife that's sitting right next to me? No, I'm teasing. It's not, it's not anybody here. And I said, what kind of spirit or attitude are you harboring that makes other people think I can go to them with this information? It's sinking in. And I said, thank you for calling to repent to me. I forgive you. I would encourage you now to backtrack with every other person that you've had these conversations with and repent to them as well. Even if you've not been on the speaking end, even if you've just been on the listening end. Because what you've done is you've stirred up division and disunity by becoming an accomplice. Listen, the guy that's driving the getaway car, when they get arrested, they go to jail too. Oh, well, they didn't go and rob the bank. Yeah, but they helped with the getaway. Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When someone walks in with a problem, ask yourself, is this a legitimate concern? If it is legitimate, then you need to direct that concern to the people who can do something about it. And then... You let go. Because it's not your deal. Well, they told me about it. Is it really have anything to do with you? Well, I mean, not directly. Then let go. Let go. If it's not a legitimate problem, and if it's not any of your business, then just stop the other person from gossiping. Hey, I don't need to hear this right now. This has nothing to do with me. And I tell you what, if you do that once or twice, people are going to stop calling you. And then you know what you're going to have? You're going to have a lot more peace in your life. You're going to have peace in your soul. Praise God for peace. There's a reason the book of James says that the tongue is like a fire. Gossiping and other sins of the tongue, they have absolutely no place in the body of Christ. Gossip is like a cancer in the body. If you found out tomorrow morning, you got a call from your doctor and said, we ran the blood work, you've got cancer, what would you do? You would immediately start doing everything that you can to rid your body of that cancer. You would call your friends and say, I need you to pray with me get this cancer out of my body. You would get on the internet and you would find holistic doctors that, that treat cancer through diet. And you would, go to the, you would go to your medical doctor and say, what's the plan? How are we gonna, you would find every single avenue that you could to attack the cancer, to get it out of your body because cancer is not going to be the death of you. But why do we let the cancer of gossip to fester in this body? You gotta get it out. If it's not, if the cancer is not removed, then it will destroy the body. That's how it works. And really, the problem of gossip, I know I said this, I know I said control your tongue, but the problem of gossip is in the heart. Something about our flesh, something about the unsanctified parts of our flesh. When we hear these things, it makes us feel important that we have information. And it, and it massages unsanctified parts of our flesh. Like, oh, man, that feels really good. Ooh, right over here. Right, right lower, lower back area. That feels good. That feels really good. The correction needs to happen in the deepest recesses of our heart. 
The truth is, is that the heart problem, if it's not fully corrected, it's not going to be fully corrected just by controlling your tongue or holding your tongue if your heart isn't in the right place. If this is an issue for you, it's going to take nothing less than the, the Holy Spirit changing your attitude and leading you to repentance, which I was so thankful for the brother that called me the other day. And he was like, hey, I got I to gotta repent. I got to repent for not just the things that I've said, but also for the things that I was just sitting there listening to. I got to repent for spreading disunity and division. And you know what I told him? I love you, and you're forgiven. That's repentance. Repentance... <laughs> is such a gift from God that we underutilize. And when someone offers us repentance, we should receive it and offer them forgiveness. And it opens the way for unity to be restored. That's what repentance does. Repentance always leads the way for unity to be restored, which leads into this, that's this other one here, and this is this. Choose to forgive every single day. Every single day, choose to forgive. Bitterness and resentment are poisons. Unforgiveness poisons the soul. It poisons your relationships, and it poisons the church. But here's the deal that we need to wake up to. This is just a simple truth, but we need to be reminded. The church is, by its very nature, a Christ-centered fellowship that is rooted in forgiveness. How many of you in here have been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ of all of your sins? Praise God, every single one of us. And at the very center of this fellowship, at the very center of this tribe, at the very center of Jesus' church is this principle that Jesus is at the center and we are gathered around him and it's made possible because he forgives our sins. What does this look like? There's this Puritan named Thomas Watson from the 1800s, and he says this. This is what forgiveness looks like. It's like when you don't seek revenge when someone offends you. You wish them well. You grieve at their calamities, but you pray for him, and you seek reconciliation, and you show yourself willing to come to their aid. This is a glimpse of what it looks like to walk in everyday forgiveness and maintain unity. Next one. How do we guard our unity? We practice Jesus' method of conflict resolution. Matthew chapter 18 gives us very, Jesus himself gives us very clear guidelines of how to deal with issues that we have with one another when the enemy is trying to break us apart and trying to attack and destroy our unity, Jesus gives us an answer. When you have a problem with someone, what do you do? You gossip and call someone else about it? No, you go to that person directly. If that person, if, if it thinks something cannot be reconciled and they don't listen, then you find a trusted second person, someone that's mature in the Lord, and you bring them along as a witness. If the person still doesn't listen, you bring them, listen, Jesus, I mean, like, Jesus, like, you bring them before the whole, the whole body. So you bring them before the leadership of the church. But then what happens if they still don't repent? Jesus himself said this. Let's just read it. Gosh, because I just don't want you to take my word for it. It's go to Matthew I'll tell you what he says. It's going to make you feel really good. <laughs> We're just reading all the easy things today. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Praise God. If he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? There's other translations that say this. Treat him like a pagan or an unbeliever. Well, they call themselves a Christian. They show up to church once a month. No, Jesus says it doesn't matter what they, they call themselves. If they're not... <laughs> If, if they are not reflecting the life of, the, of a disciple, one who learns the way of their master and then does the way of their master, then they're not a disciple. And so you have to treat them like a pagan or an unbeliever. Does that mean that you hate their guts? No. Does Jesus hate unbelievers? Does Jesus hate pagans? No. His whole, his whole concept of the gospel is to be reconciled to them. But Jesus is saying you cannot treat them like they're just one of the body anymore because they're part of the cancer. And the cancer has to be removed from the body in order for it to be healthy. When repentance comes, comes healing. And comes reconciliation. And and, and restoration. And a way to move forward. And praise God. That's why we practice Jesus' method of conflict conflict resolution. But if someone is not willing to participate in that, then you've got to go, I'm sorry. Until you repent, this is the way it's going to be. This is the last one right here. We'll wrap it up. Encourage. If we're wanting to support the unity of this church and guard the unity of the church, this right here, encourage and support the leaders. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Open, you can go to your Bible if you want to. You don't have to take my word for it. Read it for yourself. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That you would certainly, that certainly, (laughs) excuse me, that would certainly not be for your benefit if you made it hard on your leaders. I told, when we went to camp, to youth camp a, a couple weeks ago, the last night we were there, I gathered all the boys together. Isaac and I were the leaders there for all of the seeds guys. And I told these guys, I said, thank you for making it easy on myself and Isaac this week to be your leader. It was such a pleasure, it was such a joy. and I. Lily is, she was one of the female leaders and I hear her amening and unhung on the front row. Same thing for you. Like the girls did not make it difficult on you guys to be their leaders. It was such a joy. It was so good for everybody that there were so many, was everything perfect? No, everything wasn't perfect, but it was really compared to like some camps I've been to, it was incredibly easy. And the kids were amazing. And it just, it made me to be glad to be there. And at the end of the week, I wasn't going, oh God, I'm so glad this week of camp is over. These kids are crazy. I'm gonna call all their parents right now and tell them everything. No, I didn't have to call any parents about anything because it was wonderful. And Paul's saying, do that for the church leadership. And I wanna say this, don't think for one single second that the leadership here of this church, and when I say that, I'm including a lot of us because if you serve on the dream team in any area of service in this church, then you are on the scale of leadership. You're on the scale. And if you lead a life group in this church, then you're on the scale of leadership. And I wanna say that not one single one of us that are in leadership, it is not our heart and it is not our desire is to control people. I haven't, listen, I have plenty enough in my life going on that I don't need to worry about controlling you. But what I do want to bring attention to is here in what the writer of Hebrews says is that he says that 
the spiritual leaders are accountable to God for you. One day, I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account to him for the people that he brought to me to lead. He's going to hold you accountable for how you lead in your area of service. Those of you that lead a life group, he's going to make you accountable for the way that you led your life group and the unity of this church and for the direction that we steered it. Unity is our responsibility. Just like we read in the very beginning of this, in John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying this out. And even if you go back to the beginning of that, of that whole section in John 13, where the beginning of the dinner talks, and the beginning of when he's sitting there at the, at the Passover meal with the disciples, Jesus tells us that our unity will be a witness to him. Unity is a must for the mission. Our unity is a testimony to who God is and what he wants to do in the lives of those who are still lost and not yet reconciled to him. For those who still need to come home to Jesus. Would you stand up with me right now in a spirit of unity? And we did this on Wednesday night with our dream team, which is a group of people who are probably a lot more close-knit in relationship than just all of us here. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do, just in a spirit of faith and a spirit of unity, is to grab hands with the person next to you. And those of you, like, let's join hands across the aisle. You're like, I have to hold hands with somebody. I'm never coming back to this church again. I want to point this out. I said this Wednesday night, too. Molly is holding hands here with Jennifer and with Lucas. But in a spirit of unity, she's also holding hands down here with Noble and Lily at the end. It's all, they're all connected. They're all connected together. Let's pray for the unity in our church. That the enemy will not have his heyday and come in and divide us. We will clearly just resist that in the name of Jesus. That we're, we're going to not make things about ourselves that we're going to not gossip, that we're gonna walk in forgiveness, right? That we're gonna keep the main thing, the main thing. That we're gonna control our tongue, that we're gonna encourage and support the leaders and we're gonna practice Jesus's method of conflict resolution. These are ways to guard the unity. Now here's what I want you to do. I just want you to right now, uh, out loud, just begin to just pray for the people next to you and for the people in this room that you know, if there's people in this, in this church family, in this body that you need to be reconciled to, uh, if there's people that you've gossiped with or if you've been on the receiving end of gossip that you need to go and repent before, just let's start asking the Holy Spirit to just correct, bring correction to us, Jesus, because you prayed that we would be in unity with one another just as you are in unity with the Father and that you want us to be in you in the same way. And so, Lord, if there's areas that we need to repent of so that we can be in unity with each other, that we need to repent of so that we can be in unity with you, we just do it. God, and we do it, we don't do it begrudgingly. We humble ourselves. We, we, just, we just lay down our pride. We humble ourselves before you. And we thank you that your word says that if we humble ourselves at due time, you will lift us up. And God, we just pray that you would lift us up. But it's not so that people can see us, but it's so that people can see Jesus. Because Jesus, you are the reason. You're the main thing. Your mission is our mission. Your gospel is our mission. And so, Lord, I just ask you to help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to lay down our personal preferences and pride. God, we intercede for the unity of this church. We don't want any impedances to get into the way, Lord God, as we're serving you and as we're ministering the life-changing gospel to the needs of, of Middle Tennessee. And so, God, we instead, we want to walk in humility toward one another. God, help us to not be ugly with one another. Help us to not be harsh or hateful toward one another. God, but instead, help us to put on the fruit of the Spirit. Develop well-formed fruit of the Spirit within us. Develop the, the, the fruit of gentleness within our, our lives and within our body. Holy Spirit, do this. Help us not to be so short with one another, God. Help us to be full of patience and long-suffering with each other, just like you were, Jesus, when the disciples were just acting, acting like total doofuses. God, you were just so kind to them, 
and you, you brought correction to them, but you didn't send them away. You continued to say, well, let me explain this to you. Let me, let, let me come in here and I'll show this to you. Lord, help us be that way with one another. E- even when <laughs> we make mistakes over and over and over again, help us continue to walk in generosity and gentleness and, and, lo- and long-suffering and patience with each other, God. Help us to see and understand the kind of love that you have for us so that we can then, therefore, God, show it to other people. And Lord, give us zeal for your house and for your body. Like, Lord, let, let there be actual zeal on the inside of us for your house and for your mission and for one another that we've linked arms with here this morning. God, you say you come where you're wanted. And so, Jesus, in a spirit of unity, we say we want you here. And if you agree with that, shout amen. 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 amen.